Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Business, where we chronicle the stories of the visionaries and disruptors leading society to a better future. In our interviews, we host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly finance opportunities and build outstanding success stories. The fact is, is that business is hard. It's a 24-7 full-contact sport that we don't always win at. With these conversations, I hope we can inspire and inform you so you can avoid costly mistakes and achieve the mission you've set for yourself, your team, and your company. We've interviewed over 100 leaders in audio podcasts, and now we're moving to video. The lessons I've learned from these past interviews have changed my life, and I know they can do the same for you. Whether you're listening to this in audio podcast or on video, you can hugely help us by commenting or sharing on these interviews. As well, we have a periodic newsletter, The Knowledge Bank, where we share compelling stories from our interviews, as well as actionable insights that you can put to work immediately. Now, enjoy the show. I'm here with Euro Koskinen, the Professor and Associate Dean of Research and Business Impact at the University of Calgary, Haskane School of Business. We have an interesting conversation coming. Your background is in finance, among many things, and sustainable finance, which is something that I'd be really interested in discussing with you. But I think the best place for us to start is to hand it over to you for an introduction and all your credentials, because you've got a lot of publications, a lot of experience in the world of finance, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So can I hand it over to you? Well, thank you, Corey, and I'm very pleased to be here. If you're wondering, hey, where does a guy in the name like Uria Koskinen? Oh, that's a Finnish name. I'm originally from Finland, but I haven't lived in Finland since 1992. I still have a summer college in Finland, and I haven't been, unfortunately, there during the COVID, but hopefully this summer, after a couple of years, we'll be go back to our, our summer college in uh, southwestern Finland. Beautiful. A little bit of a global nomad. I did my PhD in France. I had my first academics job in Stockholm, Sweden. Then I spent 12 years in the United States, in Boston and Philadelphia, and now since 2016 in Calgary. So I've been around for many, many different places. I mean, everybody asks, which one is the best place? They've all been great. Boston is great with proximity to the ocean. Calgary is great with the proximity of the Rocky Mountains and so forth. So I've been lucky to have lived in very, very interesting places. From all the work experience you've had and with the academic institutions you've been involved with, how does it change? For example, us as Canadians and fellow Calgarians, culturally, what is the academic lifestyle or academic thinking like compared to, say, in Boston or in Finland? And how does that change? And what are your thoughts on that? So I have only been a student in Finland. So I don't know how to how is it to be a faculty member in Finland. Canada is a very interesting country. It's not really United States. It's not really Europe. It's somewhere in between. So if you compare the academic culture in the U.S. versus in Canada, it's much more cutthroat in the U.S. There's so much more competition. People are very good at self-promoting. Canadians are always very polite and a little bit soft-spoken. Canada really reminds me a lot of Scandinavia or the Nordic countries. Very similar values, value sustainability, value diversity, human rights, democracy. So when I came first to Calgary, I had to unlearn a little bit of my Boston ways. You can't be so aggressive and assertive here. People say, who the hell are you? Why do you behave that way? So I think, 
How did that behave right. when I was growing up in Finland? How did that behave in, in, in Sweden? Oh, no. And now I know yeah. how to do this. That's an interesting one. And with academia as well, like that self-promotion and the ambition and the intensity of the U.S. way also within academia, I could see how that would be a case. Especially in finance and in other business disciplines. Yeah, U.S. is so dominant in academia. And then and lots of countries are copying the, the U.S. system which has been very successful in, in, in generating new knowledge. But the downside is that, they, I mean, there is a lot of self-promotion. The competition is fierce. So there's thousands and thousands of new papers coming out. Very few papers get a lot of attention. So there's a, there's a really competition to get into the sun and see, the, oh, well, look at my paper, isn't it great? And it came out in a good journal. It's difficult. Sometimes people think that, oh, every tower, oh, it's a leisure job. There's not that much stress. That's not true. If you want to aim high, there is a lot of stress and a lot of competition. Absolutely. And I can imagine, not to go too far down on this topic, but I do want to just end perhaps with this point of, with that vigorous competition or extreme competition, collaboration and communication for developing new knowledge, it probably starts to break down at some point, would it not? Probably not collaboration, because you need to collaborate in order to be successful. But people are gaming the system, just like in the corporate world. They like to look better than they actually are. They, they are concentrating on subjects that they think that the top journals are interested in. So what we lost because of this intense competition is, is a little bit of the intrinsic motivation. Where people usually go to academia. They want to create knowledge. But once they're in the academia, it really becomes a career. And your career perspectives and career motives perhaps play a little bit too much of a role. Hmm. Interesting. A topic we could probably expand on, but I'm very curious to hear about your take and your experience within your academic focuses of corporate finance, sustainability in finance and governance and so on. Can you give us a high level of some of the work you've done as well as some of the publications, which I did a bit of research on, but can't speak to in depth? But there's been a lot of interesting work there. Can you give us a high level to build from? I started off doing work on international finance, and especially on the effects of the euro, the common European currency, on European corporations. So I wrote a series of papers on that, showing that at least before the financial crisis hit, the euro was very good for European companies, increasing valuations, increasing investments, better access to capital markets. And as it happens that my research team broke up, one of my members left for SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, so away from academia, and the other one moved to Europe. So we were not that close anymore. So then after that, I've been doing a lot of work in sustainable finance and CSR and environmental social governance issues. I was very skeptic when I started this 10 years ago. So my co-author really had to convince me because I thought this is complete fluff. This is just window dressing, greenwashing. There's nothing here. And I was wrong. I'm really glad that my co-author convinced me that this is going to be the next big thing. And he was right. I'm eternally grateful that he convinced me. I was very, very skeptical at the beginning. This is just agency cost, CEOs doing good with some other people's money and so forth. But it's not true. I mean, ESG is a mixed bag, but there's a lot of good things happening. Let's expand on that because I'm skeptical myself. I don't fully believe that corporations are going out there who have a profit motive and a directive by, you know, their mandate is to optimize for shareholder returns. How long can they do good for before the 
hens come home to roost kind of thing and say, we need our returns, we need our profits back. Clearly, there's something more happening and I'm missing something. So where is the good coming from this ESG that is actually sustainable? I'm a kind of old-fashioned finance guy. I think the corporation's job is to generate money for its shareholders. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the world has changed in many different ways. For example, consumers these days demand that corporations are more sustainable. And they are willing to pay premium prices for sustainable products. So at least some companies have a self-interest, profit-maximizing interest to be sustainable. Maybe 20 years ago, it was just doing good. Now it's my self-interest to reduce my carbon footprint, reduce my waste, use sustainable materials because my customers want it. And also, similarly, now investors demand sustainability. If I'm a sustainable company, they're willing to lend me money at a lower interest rate. At least to a certain extent, it's in my best interest to be more sustainably oriented than ever before. In many ways, self-interest and sustainability align better now than before. Hmm. I can see that point there. I'm curious about any demonstrated success stories you've seen. When I say like, if you or ask if you believe they'll be sustainable into the long term, I want to add to that the sustainability of ESG, in my opinion, is like, how sustainable is that when economic changes come? You know, we've been in probably one of the longest sustained bull markets in, in the history of capitalism. Will this continue if we moved into a sustained bear market? Stocks with high ESG ratings have done very well until this year. This year has been the year of oil and gas. Or you starting in 2021. If you look at the stocks from Alberta oil sand stocks, they done fabulously well. Same thing in the US oil and gas companies. And the ESG stocks haven't done very well this year. So but the ESG stocks had a very good run for several years. A lot of money was flowing in the ESG funds that it was flowing the companies, increasing valuations. Is sustainability sustainable? That's a very good question because right now, the returns are not in the sustainable stocks. They're in oil and gas and other industries that have higher dividends, higher stock buybacks. And the horizons are now much shorter because all the central banks are now increasing interest rates. Interest rates increase. The long-term future becomes less valuable. So investors are now, now concentrating on the short-term near future. And that looks very promising, for example, Canadian oil and gas companies. Long-term, nobody knows. Perhaps 2050, there won't be much of an industry left. But at least 2030, 2035, and 2040, there will be a robust industry. And people are kind of valuing that. So it's a very good question. Is sustainability sustainable? There are some great success stories. So if you think about a Danish company called Ørsted, it's an energy company. And it used to be traditional natural gas company. So using natural gas to generate electricity for Denmark. Now it's a completely in renewables, mainly wind farms, because Denmark is not that sunny place, but there's a lot of wind in Denmark and from the North Sea. And uh, Orsted has been a darling of our capital markets, very high valuations. I think the long-term future is still in the renewables. Of course, they, we will be needing oil and gas for many years to come. But there's things like that that are really, oh my God, this is a great company. An amazing energy transformation from natural gas to wind power. 
That's actually a great example of moving out of if you're an energy company who's primarily focused on oil and gas and being able to use that and effectively, if you think about ES and G from an environmental standpoint, moving into cleaner renewables. Okay, that's, you know, checks that box. If you're talking about a social standpoint, there's the social impacts of having less dirty energy being polluting our environment. Okay, now from a governance, and I want to take that further to a management standpoint, you start to get into the sustainability of the company by reinvesting in energy production sources that will sustain the ups and downs of the commodity market itself. And so the company had that incentive to invest in renewables and now has almost a hedge against the downturn in the oil and gas market, which we saw for you know a good six or seven years there. And so it sounds like that is a great example. I think Orsted is a great example, but I don't think, for example, it would work that well in Canada because we already have established players in wind energy. For example, TransAlta is now moving towards wind energy. So I don't think Canadian oil and gas companies would have a competitive advantage starting now, okay, let's invest in wind or solar because there's already established players in the solar, for example, GreenGate. So I don't know what's the value added gas companies would have in moving the renewables. However, there's also nice examples of oil and gas companies that have managed to transition. For example, Finnish oil company, downstream oil company called Neste Oil. Business model was simple. Export crude oil from Russia, refine it in Finland, sell it abroad. But now it's the main business line is now renewable diesel. So not biodiesel, but renewable diesel, making diesel fuel and aviation fuel from all kinds of waste. Hugely profitable. The valuation skyrocketed. I mean, now, they are, now the company hasn't been matched to increasing stock prices for oil and gas companies because it's still a refining oil, but not that much anymore. For many, many years, this renewable diesel and renewable aviation fuel played out hugely. I mean, if you know to how to refine traditional diesel and traditional aviation fuel, you have a huge advantage in these renewable fuels. Interesting. You mentioned Russia there. And I'm curious to get into a bit of a conversation about the conflict between Ukraine, the exports from Russia being their natural gas and their oil, and things that you're seeing and that are interesting to you. What do you foresee that's going to come in the future for our economies from this? That's a really a several billion dollar question. <laughs> it's a huge question. It's a huge question. <laughs> you know that, I mean... It, Western Europe has been very dependent on, especially Russian natural gas, but also Russian oil. Germany gets 60% of its natural gas from, from Germany, has built a two new pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. The Nord Stream 2 is not operational and it looks like it's never going to be open. But now for geopolitical reasons, for national security reasons, Europe has to divert away from Russian energy. And that's going to be hugely expensive. It's possible perhaps in oil, because oil is a global commodity. You don't have to buy Russian oil. You can buy oil from Canada, United States, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, any of the Gulf states. That's relatively easy to try and move away from Russian oil to other sources of oil. But natural gas will be tricky because there's so many pipelines between mm-hmm. Russia and Western Europe. How do you replace that? You can't replace that. And you think about, okay, let's start now buying LNG, the liquid natural gas. But that's, okay, you have to ship it from somewhere. For example, Germany doesn't have a single LNG terminal right now. So it's going to take right. a little, little while before they, they build up terminals. 
the world's capacity in the LNG is much limited compared to the natural gas that is shipped via pipelines. That's going to be a difficult issue. When you think about the geopolitics of what's happening with Russia and the cards that they're able to play that the West isn't at this point, it's pretty fascinating. And, And, you know, it's really interesting. You see some of these headlines come out about how, you know, the West is still importing oil and natural gas from Russia, where everything else is sanctioned. What are we doing? We might be in conflict, the West and the East, if you will, the West and Russia. But business still goes on because one side still needs a resource and Russia still needs the capital to come in. So we can't just shut it off like with everything else. And and so we continue to go down that path. But as we get deeper and deeper into this conflict, the pressures will mount. And it seems like Russia holds a trump card when winter comes and they can just shut off Europe from all access to natural gas because there's no infrastructure to bring it in from anywhere else. Or maybe, no, there's very little infrastructure. But I doubt that Russia will shut down natural gas because Russia needs its revenues. And Europe needs the natural gas. It's interesting. It looks like that Europe has now made a decision to get away from Russian oil. So it looks like the European Union is making a decision that we're going to transit away from Russian oil to other sources. And that's going to be a huge blow to Putin's regime. Of course, Russia will be able to sell it elsewhere. There's a lot of need for oil in the Far East, in China, for example. There's very little pipeline capacity between Russia and China. So you have to put it in tankers. China is pretty far away from Russia. So it's probably going to get cut down Russia's profit margins to a certain extent. And that's a huge decision by Europe saying, okay, we, we won't be buying Russian oil anymore. We're still buying Russian gas because we are really so dependent on Russian gas. But at least getting away from buying oil, that's a huge step. And that's going to be a big blow for Putin's war machine. Now, if we were to look at some of the work you've done in the past and your focus on governance and kind of environmental focuses and thinking about oil and gas, what are some of the issues you believe corporations are facing, even international corporations who are having to deal with this conflict? And what are some of the issues they're dealing with at the boardroom table when they're discussing governance and environmental issues in relation to this international conflict? So everybody always complains about that ESG, so environmental social governance, it's a such an alphabet soup. There's probably not enough letters there because ESG has always neglected issues like democracy, issues like geopolitics, is this country safe? They've been always very firm specific measures. And we have kind of realized, oh my God, there are huge geopolitical risks. And perhaps if you want to be sustainable, maybe you shouldn't buy your gas or oil from a dictatorship that happens to be also aggressive and messianic and uh, wants to dominate Europe. Yeah. And uh, oh my God, yeah, and now exposed, it's, it sounds so obvious. But we were kind of hoping for the best. We were thinking that, okay, if we trade with Russia and it's mutually beneficial, that would create an incentive for Russia to change. And it wasn't a stupid idea, but it turned out to be false. Russia didn't change. It used cash flows that it was getting from oil and gas to become even a more bigger military power instead of increasing the living standards for its own people. These are very, very tricky issues. And I think we need to start taking geopolitics and democracy and human rights much more seriously. I mean, we have ESG investing has been really emphasizing environment and especially climate change. And of course, that is important. No doubt about that. But think about it. You know, saving the planet 
but destroying your own democracy. What kind of life would that be? We have to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. So we have to have multiple objectives. We have to make sure that we, we are not increasing the global temperatures too much. But we also have to realize that there is something special about democracy and human rights. And they are now under, under attack in many places in the world. It's such a huge point. And some of the thinking I've been doing around it, and by no means anywhere near an expert, this is a bit of spitballing, if anything, but to give ourselves the ability and the luxury to save the environment, to tackle climate change, that needs to be done on a solid foundation of what I believe needs to be a democratic government and a democratic group of countries across the world, right? It can't just be a few of them. And if we have human rights abuses or we have dictatorships which are calling the shots to whatever their whim is, how will you ever have the capabilities to produce the innovation and the solutions to tackle climate change? I feel like if we don't deal with those, if we only talk about the environment, we're not talking about some of these other issues, it could crumble and we could find ourselves just in a world of hurt. We definitely need democracy and we need innovation. And innovation works best in a democratic society where people are able to think freely, speak freely, and dream freely. And nobody is telling the devil, you can't think like that or you can't talk like that. We have faced enormous challenges, and some of the technologies that hopefully are going to solve the issue don't exist yet. So somebody has to invent those. And where is that going to happen? It's not going to happen in authoritarian countries that are dictatorships. Because people don't have the freedom to innovate. Imagine if you are a very innovative person in China and suddenly the government takes over your company or some oligarch takes over your company. And that reduces the incentives to be creative and innovative. China has managed that balance much better than Russia. But I think, let's say, creative cutting edge technologies, those have to come from free and democratic and capitalistic countries. Yeah. I very much believe and agree with you there, but perhaps it's because I've grown up here and I would say that I'm a devout capitalist. I believe in capitalism with self-interest to drive innovation, but that needs freedom of speech, the freedom to dream, the freedom to, and the ability to act in a tax regime that supports innovation, all of that kind of stuff. Have you ever felt within your career or seen a change in, from an academic standpoint, your freedoms? Have you felt them be limited at all? Not really. I wouldn't say so, especially in my academic work. It's a concrete freedom. When you start becoming more of a pundit and writing op-eds for newspapers, then you have to think a little bit more clearly because people might misunderstand what you mean. You have to choose your words a little bit more carefully. You don't want to create big trouble for your university or your own school. So you have certain responsibilities. But for academic work, there's no limit on academic freedom. You can do pretty much whatever you like. But when you start writing open pieces, you have to think about the consequences. Right. You still have the reputation management of the institution in which you effectively work for. Yeah, think about it. I haven't said, I would never say because I don't believe it. But imagine if I, if I wrote an open saying, we have to run down our oil and gas industry in Alberta. I mean, that would create a lot of, lot of ruckus. I don't believe in that because I think you also have to think about how to keep Alberta and Canada prosperous. If you shut down the oil and gas industry, that would be a tremendous shock for the Alberta and Canadian economy. But if I were to write that kind of things, there would be a backlash. Yeah. Well, I can imagine from an Alberta institution, absolutely. 
I've heard and been exposed to those in BC where I live now who seem to want to demonize Alberta and gross generalization. But something I do want to bring up because it's really important to me is not the Albertan, but the Canadian oil and gas industry, right? It's BC, it's Alberta, it's Saskatchewan, where we have those assets. I think it is so important that even if people are absolutely dead set against oil and gas, that they recognize that Canadian oil and gas is some of the most ethical and clean energy produced from a dirty resource. And we need to recognize that versus be taking that oil and gas and importing it from sometimes states like Russia or the Middle East. Yeah, or Venezuela. So we have to recognize that Canada is a democratic country that takes sustainability seriously. Sometimes we overstate our credentials. We said, oh, we are the best in the environmental policies. I don't think that is true because the carbon emissions per barrel of oil are still higher on average from Alberta oil sense than the okay. rest of the world. We wouldn't say that we are the best. I think, for example, if you think about the environmental standards in Norway, they are far ahead of Canada. We take environmental issues seriously. There is now this path phase to that. All these six largest uh, oil science companies have now formed the path phase to net zero for 2050. And imagine if they had said that five years ago, that would have been an amazing boost to Alberta and Canadian image. Now they said it last year. And then people say, oh, hum, okay, not on a zero objective. Right. A little late to the party. A little bit late to the party. But still, I mean, if we manage to get to net zero by 2050, that would be an enormous achievement. And I hope, since our the oil and gas companies now are now hugely profitable, they're making so much money. Why not use that, some of that money instead of putting all in, in uh, stock buybacks and dividends? Start putting more of that money into energy transition. It might hurt the stock price in the short term, but in the long term, I think it will be a payoff hugely if Canada managed to clean up its so-called scope one and scope two emissions as the first nation in the world. That would be an amazing boost to our image and reputation. And I think we had the cash flows to do it. But now, of course, CEOs like to maximize the shareholder value, investors like high dividends, stock buybacks. So all these billions and billions are now going to stock buybacks and dividends. Perhaps some yeah. of this should be diverted to, okay, let's speed up the energy transition. Let's speed up our net zero plans and try to do it maybe not 2050, but 2040. Well, that brings us back to the company that you mentioned earlier, which has become a darling in the markets for transitioning out of pure natural gas or refining and into more sustainable energy. Hopefully, there's the long-term vision there. It might just take one future-thinking CEO who wants to lead the charge. It has to be some brave individual when you separate from the pack, you might be wrong. And if you're wrong and everybody else is making so much money, you're going to lose your job. So this, that takes a brave individual. What if you're right? Then if the future belongs to you. So, I mean, it's a dilemma. It is. And this is the kind of the big conundrum when you think about ESG at, at times. It's like for that CEO or that management team, and let's pin it on one individual, that CEO, they have to respond to their board or they have to answer to their board of, we're putting 25% of our you know, retained earnings or our, our cash, not into buybacks or into dividends, but we're going to be investing this in renewable energy. What does that do for the story? How does the market respond and so on and so on? And traditionally, that CEO has built his career not on being an entrepreneur, but being a manager. 
And so it's got to be a hard thing to initiate or promote that kind of, yeah, that initiative. So it's it's a big question. It's going to take somebody who's got some guts. Most of the CEOs are very good at incremental innovation. Let's improve the energy efficiency of our operations. Let's reduce incrementally our emissions. But thinking in a radically different ways, it's going to be hard because they grow through the system. Doing what for Orsted is very, very rare. That, okay, we, we used to be a natural gas company. Now we are going to be a wind farm company. That's very rare. And managed to do that successfully. And a lot of people have tried and usually they fail. But I think it's going to be hard for, if you've been an oil and gas engineer, then growing through the ranks, it's going to be hard for changing your ways of thinking and becoming more radical. And say, okay, well, let's hit for the fences. Let's go for, for the home run and not for singles. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Big question. If there is a CEO of a Canadian oil and gas company you'd like to see do that or make a shout out to, do you, is there anybody who comes to mind? Not really. They're all very sensible, good people. I really admire that they started this path facing net zero. They're taking this seriously. But again, they're still thinking about the federal government in terms of tax credit. Said, that, okay, we're going to pay 50%. Some of the CEOs say, oh, that's not enough. It's not going to be profitable to us. But hey, guys, you have, you're making so much money. Don't think about the short-term profitability. Think about it. You want to have a company after 2050 or not. If you're happy that your company is going to be wiped out by 2050, 2060, okay, go ahead and put all the money in the stock buybacks, the dividends, and enjoy the ride. But do you want to have a company in 2060, 2070? Then you have to start doing something differently. When you put it like that, it brings to mind the blockbuster Netflix kind of saga or scenario and how Blockbuster refused to change and ultimately became a bankrupt entity. And by 2050, could oil and gas companies be forced into that position because of regulations in and around environmental standards and social standards versus those who endeavor to go and, and move into more sustainable and renewable energy sources using the assets that they have now? Would they become the kind of energy companies that Netflix is, as an analogy there. Yeah, absolutely. We think that, okay, the energy transition will be slow because it always has. History always repeats itself. There's a classic joke about bankruptcy. So how did you end up bankrupt? First slowly and then suddenly. You see that nothing happens. And then suddenly a lot of things happen really, really fast. So you never, you have this kind of things that you, companies can collapse very fast. Did you see that, the, I mean, Netflix stock price was last week went down by 35%. So now Netflix yeah. is in trouble because it has competitors, yeah. it has been increasing prices, people are getting more price sensitive. Oh, I can't afford to have all these streaming services. Maybe I will get rid of my Netflix subscription. And now suddenly, oh, Netflix might be the next crisis company. This has happened to Kodak, happened to yeah. General Electric, and in Finland, happened to Nokia, Apple ate Nokia's lunch and so forth. All these companies, great companies, Nothing happens in the, in the short term, and then suddenly a very quick collapse. Very quick, yeah. Wow. You know, something that comes to mind, it's not directly related to this conversation, but in our earlier call, we discussed your views on the world of ESG and mutual funds and the marketing of those funds and some of the criticisms there. I'm curious, like my background is in finance and marketing. There's always a story, a spin, and a goal to attract investors and investment in but there's a fine line. I'm curious to hear your take in the world of mutual funds and what's happening there. The marketing of ESG mutual funds has been very, very dishonest. 
maybe they, they have toned down a little bit lately, but it used to be that, okay, they could show that temporarily the ESG funds had fabulous returns. So they, they marketed the funds that, hey, you can save the world and make these fabulous returns going forward. But if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I think it's a logical impossibility to save the world and make tons of money at the same time. Yes, ESG creates value, some at least sometimes. If finance and markets realize that the ESG is creating value, the prices will adjust right away to a higher level. But it doesn't mean that the future returns will be high. You can never promise that the future returns will be high, so-called expected returns. The evidence says that they are they haven't been bad, but you haven't been able to make huge amount of money going forward. ESG creates value perhaps for the existing shareholders, but if you are too late to the party, you won't get those benefits. I understand that business is always market and spin, including business schools. So, but you have to be seeing through that spin that you have to be a little bit skeptical about this overblown claims that this is so great and save the world and then become rich doing that. It sounds fabulous, but is it really true? And in most cases, unfortunately, it's not. There's, in some cases, the CSG needs to come back to kind of get grounded again and some structure put around and some process put around to really enable it to become just as routine and as common as regular audits or reporting standards that are set by regulators and so on. I think for that to for ESG to become commonplace and just something that is a part of ongoing business, we need to see that kind of regular rigor occur. Something I'm curious about that when you measure returns from the studies and the work you've done, what's the time horizon that you're doing that? And is it on the return in stock price or return in dividends or another form that you measure those returns on? So we usually measure stock returns, including the dividends that companies pay out. But uh, the problem with all these studies is usually the time series are too short. In uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, a lot of money was flowing to ESG funds. And that temporarily increased the stock prices for all ESG companies. And the returns looked really great. And then you can say that, oh my goodness, this is a money-making machine. Then comes 2021 and 2022. Which sector is now the best performing sector? Oil and gas. And the ESG stocks have been suffering. So you can never make promises about future returns. You have to be very careful that say that, hey, past is not a guarantee of future returns. Coming back to the returns and the profiles that are in the, the industry, I think that's it's in the markets, even in the global markets, there's a finite amount of capital searching out a finite amount of good deals for return. It sounds like what we've just experienced in our markets from, we saw almost a, would you call it a secular rotation from ESG stocks where you had a whole bunch of capital entering, chasing returns that money gets put into a finite amount of deals, that demand on a limited supply drives up some prices. But then all of a sudden people say, oh, hey, everybody forgot about oil and gas and we still need that. So the money all of a sudden pours out of ESG and now over to the dirty industry and we've all but forgotten about the ESG work. And nobody, let's say, remember when in, in early in the pandemic, when the best Texas intermediate been negative price for a moment, nobody would have imagined that a year later, we're talking about, oh my God, $100 a barrel. 
And then the people who, who stick to it, oil and gas stocks at that price, they have made a killing right now. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. We had to realize that we're going to need oil and gas for uh, some decades. And we're probably going to need oil and gas in petrochemicals. We shouldn't be burning oil and gas in combustion engines that much. And that's going to go down. But it's going to be a slow process. And hopefully we just do our best. And I still think that oil and gas is not the growth industry. It's best stable industry. And probably it's even still a declining industry. So if Canada wants to prosper going forward, we have to do something else. So a diversification of the economies. We always have the same problem in Alberta. You lived here a long time. Whenever times are good here, oil prices are high. We forget about diversification. Oil prices are low. Then oh, we need to diversify. Then we start the work. We don't see the results again. Then there's a new oil boom. We forget about diversification again. It's the same cycle yeah. all over all over. We never learn. We never learn the lesson. Hopefully this time is different. There's a thriving tech sector now in Calgary. Hopefully that increases so that we can compete with Waterloo and Toronto and things like that. So there's a lot of good things happening, but we just can't rest on our laurels here. I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's like, you know, the Albertan market cycle has always been uh, oil boom, followed by the bust, followed by two or three years of people crying in their soup, followed by somebody saying, okay, well, I got to do something. So they go start a business and you get a bit of diversification and then the oil booms again and they everything gets forgotten. <laughs> I think my sense is, and this is just from one man's opinion, is that Alberta had a long enough downturn there that there's been enough diversification and enough interest built into different parts of our economy that I couldn't imagine that all those jobs are just going to go right back to oil and gas. I don't think either, because oil and gas is not expanding. They're not hiring that many, many more people. Perhaps going to maintain this level of production for a few years, maybe even slightly increase, but there are not that many new investments going on in oil and gas. So it's not a growth sector. If you want to have young people staying in Alberta and in Calgary and in Edmonton, we have to have jobs that interest people. So high-tech, biotech, those kind of things, and good-paying jobs here. Now, you've worked on a number of publications and peer-reviewed articles and so on. And from all of your research, your academic research, I'm curious, what has been the most influential or moving discovery that you've had or, or moment in your academic career where you, you really had an eye-opener that you can recall? So when pandemic started and in 2020, we had a kind of an idea that, hey, maybe the ESG stocks perform really well during the pandemic because I knew that there was evidence that money was still flowing into ESG funds. So we had a kind of global race of writing a paper showing that how ESG stocks performed during the pandemic crisis. And we know that, okay, if you're the second guy or the third guy who comes with an idea, you already lost it. There's only one room for one article like that to get a global attention. So there was a team of four people. We worked 15-hour days. We were the first one to publish in the whole world, and it has got a tremendous amount of attention. And it was the first time wow. in, in many, many years that I kind of felt like a PhD student again. Oh, this is fun. This is a neat discovery. It's one of the best experiences I have in many, many years. Writing that paper, we do it really, really fast. Usually, publishing academic papers take years. From start to publication, it took us four months. It's unusually fast for academia because usually it might take four years instead of four months. Yeah. 
what was the process to write that paper when you sat down with your team? And I'm curious from the the academic process for the research and the writing of it, how did you go about it? And and especially in such a pressure cooker of a time there, you knew the pressure was on. What was that like? Well, you have to divide tasks in a team. Some people do the writing, some people do kind of thinking of the big picture. Then you have younger people who are not afraid to work hard, handling the data, getting the data. That's hard work. And everybody has to be dedicated and work fast. It's kind of divide and conquer. You have to specialize a little bit. And then you, you have to get lucky. When you start a research project, you never know are the results good or bad. And they could have been said, okay, right. there is no effect. Oh, nice try, but no cigar, right? <laughs> that way. We got lucky that we showed that, hey, ESG stocks did very well in North America during the pandemic, pandemic crash. Interesting. It's very current and that's awesome to hear. I could see you got lit up by that. I can imagine you have to read a ton, but I'm also, as a kind of a final question here, I'm curious what you do read. What interests you even outside of academia? You see this? Grow the pie. Grow the pie. So Alex Edmonds is a finance professor in London. He argues here that purposeful companies that not necessarily try to maximize profits, but have a higher purpose can do really well and generate really good returns. I've read part of the book. I will start teaching today and I've assigned this book to my students. So now I have to read it myself from cover to cover. <laughs> so this is good. And that's the reason, the reason that I've assigned it to my students. And now I have to read it and I, I can't postpone it anymore. <laughs> wow. Perhaps I'm off base from what that book is, is about, but when you say purpose and greater purpose can lead to greater returns, greater productivity, and so on. I couldn't agree more. And I believe that in so many ways, so many people have lost purpose or aren't given the opportunity to have purpose in their careers and their professions. That's leading to things like we read about of the great resignation or of limited productivity from employees in the workplace. So much can come from that. The costs of turnover with employees I think even you can push it down into areas of mental health because people don't have purpose anymore. And so perhaps that book is something that touches on that. I'm not sure, but it is a point that I wanted to bring up. It probably doesn't touch to mental health because this is a finance professor after all. We are, we are not very good at writing about mental health, but you're absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. I mean, people need a purpose in their life. And usually, quite often, it is outside of their work. The work is just a paycheck. The real purpose in life is somewhere else. But if you want to have super productive people, it probably is going to happen in a company where everybody believes in the purpose. That's hard to establish because everybody realizes that sometimes companies come with this vision, vision and mission statements. That sounds so nice, but then nothing happens. It's just a cheap talk. Live your mission, live your vision. That's the hard part. And then you might be wrong and the returns might never come. So it's not easy to create these great companies that people really believe in. Easy to say that, hey, you should be one. Yeah, you should be like Wayne Gretzky, but that's not that easy. There are not that many Wayne Gretzkys. Conor McDavid is still pretty far away from Wayne Gretzky. Yes, that's a very good point. It's, it's far easier said than done. But any final thoughts for our audience as we aim to wrap this up? ESG field has a lot of issues, like greenwashing, companies manipulating their ratings. It's a worthwhile exercise. It is a force for good in society. But you have to avoid the excessive hype. 
It's not the solution to all our problems. So you have to kind of be a little bit skeptical. I mean, always be skeptical about whenever companies think that, well, we are doing all these great things because companies are very good at marketing themselves. They're very good at telling their stories. But there is some good work happening. And sometimes it is so difficult to separate the hype from reality. And there is some good reality. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. And this has some problems. I think it's a worthwhile exercise. I certainly agree with you. And I think that perhaps it got a little too far ahead of itself. But hopefully from all of the hype that was there, some of the foundational roots have been set in which it can, you know, the industry and the purpose and the people who are leading some of these charges can take root and make this into something that delivers on the promises that come from it. So yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Let's wrap it up with that. Thank you, Corey. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This was a great fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Business. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through our website at creativereturn.ca.